Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Bill Barnwell Show. I'm Bill Barnwell. Today, I am joined by myself. I'm doing a mailbag show today. So I hope you guys enjoy that. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to encourage everyone to check out Swaggy and Perk, an ESPN podcast that we have all been dreaming about here at ESPN for a while now, led by its namesake hosts, Marcus Spears, the Swaggy himself, and Kendrick Perkins. New episodes every Tuesday morning. Spears and Perkins will bring listeners the latest NBA and NFL news. Of course, former players in the NBA and in the NFL, as well as a look inside their lives, their career journey, and they'll be can't-miss conversations. That's Swaggo and Perk. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, and it's also available on ESPN's YouTube channel. Now, here's the show. All right, guys, excited to do a mailbag show today. I think we did this maybe before the season might have been the last one. Not sure exactly when we did the last one, but... Wanted to get to some of your questions, and you guys asked some really good questions this week. I feel like we're going to hit some stuff that I think I've wanted to talk about for the last few weeks. Maybe I've addressed it a little bit in a column here and there, or maybe I had someone else on the show to talk about it. But I wanted to give my own insight maybe into some of the stuff that people are asking. I think there's some good stuff about some strategy stuff that's happening in the NFL, some stuff about a number of things that maybe aren't going as planned. And I think it's all stuff I'm excited to discuss. I hope you guys enjoy it. And I'm going to start with a question about the game happening tonight with the New England Patriots facing the Atlanta Falcons and Samuel Fleming. Uh, Say, Bill, as a Patriots fan, I wish they had traded up to get Justin Fields. Now, I'm hoping Mac Jones is as good as Kirk Cousins, but can also consistently run a successful two-minute drill. Is that too much to hope for in terms of Mac going forward? And I mentioned this today on Debatable with uh, Dominique Foxworth and Pablo Torre, which you can check out I think it's on YouTube, certainly on the debatable Twitter. I know we all retweeted it. Um, I, I said that Mac Jones was Teddy Bridgewater with better marketing, which I, I, I mostly agree with. Like, I feel like I'm playing it up a little bit. And certainly Mac Jones is the, the time to get better, but we're still seeing him as a player where I think maybe the hype is pretty hard. Um, he certainly has his strengths. I think he's a better processor than anybody else in this rookie class. And we're seeing that. We're seeing him create easy completions. We're seeing him operate quick game effectively. We're seeing him do the stuff that, you know, Tom Brady did at an extremely high level. I think even Mac Jones supporters would say he's not doing it at a Tom Brady level. But we're not really seeing a lot else. I mean, there was that incredible play to Kendrick Bourne last week for a touchdown against the Browns. That was, to be frank, mostly Kendrick Bourne making a spectacular catch. It was a throw into double coverage. Um, So far this year, Mac Jones is 29th in the NFL, in QBR on deep throws. Not very good, granted. Now, he is better than Kirk Cousins was at this point of Kirk Cousins' career. Kirk Cousins was a fourth-round pick, I believe, yeah, mid-round pick, either third, fourth, or fifth, and in that range. Mac Jones, a first-round pick, um, but Kirk Cousins could not stop throwing interceptions at this point of his career. He was, I think, like the worst passer in league history when it came to throwing interceptions to start his career after he adjusts for era, of course, eventually he got better and turned into a very successful and talented NFL quarterback. What we saw Kirk Cousins do, though, is create real shot opportunities off of play action, whether it was uh, with Kevin Stefanski, uh, with Gary Kubiak, even in Washington with Kyle Shanahan, they were able to make those big passing opportunities downfield work. And with Mac Jones, not saying he won't develop that, not saying that he... Um, doesn't have the arm to do that or doesn't have the aptitude to do that. It's going to take some time and more reps, but we haven't seen him need to do that or do that reliably so far. 
as an NFL quarterback. And I think, you know, if he doesn't have that in his bag, if he never develops that at a high level, his ceiling or his ceiling, but but the closest comp for him would be someone like a Teddy Bridgewater who does all those things, who is a great processor before the snap, who is an accurate passer, works quick game well, but when his team's trailing, when his team needs a big play downfield, when he needs to create stuff, Teddy Bridgewater, as much as I love Teddy Bridgewater, is not that guy. And that can be a useful quarterback with the right defense and the right running game and the right scheme. And we've seen Teddy Bridgewater succeed doing that before, but with Mac Jones, I think that's what's happening right now. I mean, go over the last four weeks. Uh, he's, of course, won four games. Patriots are 4-0, one of the best teams in football. By the win probability metrics, they're number one in terms of win probability created on defense. They're fourth when it comes to win probability created in the running game. And I think they're like 14th in the past. So, I mean, Mac Jones is not hurting the Patriots, but it, I think it's the other elements of this team that are pushing the Patriots forward more so than Mac Jones, even if Mac Jones is getting a lot of the attention. So I think, you know, plenty to be excited about, uh, very little to be worried about or critical about at this point, but maybe not quite as hyped as other people are. So to answer the question, I think, I think he has certainly upside and I think certainly, um, you know, he could get better as time goes on. And I think there's something wrong with how he's playing right now, but Kirk Cousins is just a different kind of player. Like maybe I think he can deliver that kind of value, but I think it might come in a different sort of package than the one Kirk Cousins has for Minnesota. Speaking of Teddy Bridgewater, Corey McNair asks, was Teddy's avoidance of tackling Darius Slay a business decision? And there's been a weird like conversation about business decisions over the past few weeks. Like there was one game, I forget who it was. Like they were talking about business decisions as like a positive thing. Like it was just so strange. Like, like the meaning has been warped in recent weeks. So let me just, I guess, just contextualize what happened. If you didn't see it, if you saw it, um, there was a weird fumble in the Broncos game uh, by Melvin Gordon. Darius Slay uh, recovered it, was running one direction, changed direction, started running the other way, uh, and ran past Teddy Bridgewater, who seemed to uh, not really be too interested in making a tackle. And, and I think, you know, when I think about quarterbacks making tackles or, or going after the football, weird stuff happens. Like things come to play that I, I feel like I'm not qualified to say as someone who has not played quarterback at that high of a level, right? At that high of a level, I mean, at any level. Um, I think about Cam Newton uh, not going for that fumble in the Super Bowl. And, you know, a guy who was a physical player throughout his career, never really shied away from contact. A guy who played through, you know, got in a car crash and played a few days later um, for Carolina for a team that at the time was going nowhere, ended up winning the division. Like, I don't think he was someone who shied away from contact, but in that moment did not die for that football. Um, what I would also say, or sorry, I, I guess with Teddy, like he said, he was trying to force Slay back towards other tacklers, which I mean, it wasn't the most force I've ever seen from a quarterback. Uh, I, I think it would be, you, you would not get a good grade from the defensive line coach if you were the end man on the line and that's what you were trying to force. I also don't think Teddy Bridgewater was tackling him anyway. And maybe that's not Teddy Bridgewater's place to make a decision in real time. Maybe he should be uh, going after the football. But this is a guy who shredded his knee several years ago, like, like, like destroyed his knee to the point where there were reasonable concerns his career was going to be over. It cost him several years of his career and changed the trajectory of what Teddy Bridgewater's life was going to be like. I... I don't think I can fault him 
for making that decision in that moment. I think about other quarterbacks who have gotten away with this because it has not been as conspicuous. Um, Ryan Fitzpatrick, there's a gif I always post every year of Ryan Fitzpatrick throwing a pick six. And after the pick, his teammates are running to try and tackle Antonio Cromartie. Ryan Fitzpatrick has his head bowed like he's Charlie Brown or uh, Michael Sarah on Arrested Development imitating Charlie Brown and just walking the other way off the field, which no one cares about because it's Ryan Fitzpatrick and he's kind of mean. Even last week, Tom Brady um, threw an interception, just an ugly throw uh, that I think was to Chris Godwin, maybe that was picked off, and you know didn't go after the didn't go after the uh, the defensive back. It wasn't a pick six; it was he was tackled, but just put his head between his legs and just sighed. Just his whole body seemed to just release tension. Like he was so stressed uh, after this pick. To me, at the end of the day, the people who are going to make the decision about whether this was a business decision or whether it was something that was, you know, the, the discretion being the better part of valor are going to be his teammates. And that might not be public. That might be private. Might your stuff leaked out after the season. We may see Teddy Bridgewater that get helped up after a sack or something. I don't know. But I think Teddy Bridgewater's teammates are the ones who are going to make that decision for uh, whether that was an appropriate choice to make in that moment or not. Uh, Teddy Bridgewater, by all accounts, a beloved teammate in years past. I don't think that's going to be any different here, but who knows? I, I think we'll see in the weeks to come. C.D. Bias, or speaking of other quarterbacks in suspension, asked, does Cam help the Panthers? Does he have much left in the tank? I wrote about this a little bit in my column today for ESPN, where I was talking about the three close divisional races where all four teams are in the divisional race in the AFC North, yeah, AFC North, AFC West, and the NFC North. And so, or the NFC South, excuse me. And of course the Panthers um, has not been a pretty season for Carolina at five and five, but a, a victory that looks more impressive maybe on paper last week at beating Arizona. Of course, the record for Arizona is great, but this is a very limited Cardinals team. No DeAndre Hopkins, no Kyler Murray, no JJ Watt. Um, different than the actual Cardinals we see from week to week. So what is interesting about this Panthers team is that they don't need to be great on offense. They are third in the NFL in defensive DVOA. And I think that's probably a little inflated by the performance against the Cardinals, given that it was Colt McCoy and company, but still a generally very good defense so far this season. When the Panthers have won or even just tied the turnover battle they're five and zero. Oh. When they lose it, they are zero oh and five. And so, from Cam's perspective, I don't think this offense has to be great. I think it just has to be okay. I think if there is just a decent offense, that defense is enough to win football games. Now, how will Cam himself do? I'm a little nervous. I mean, yes, he has much better weapons in Carolina than he had with the Patriots a year ago. But the Patriots' offensive line last year was better than the offensive line. Cam is going to be playing with this season. Uh, Carolina missing several starters up front. The only guy who was starting week one who is still in the same spot uh, as we hit it, week 10 a week ago was uh, Taylor Moden, the excellent right tackle. That is not something you're hoping for if you're moving to more of a power running game. And I think for Cam, you know, what he's best at, what he does really well is work out of that, you know, quarterback running game, running power, running uh, inverted beer, running stuff that plays to his strengths as a ball carrier and a runner between the tackles. And that stuff, you can't just install overnight. Like maybe they'll try, maybe they'll have a pretty diverse run game, but 
it's going to be sloppy. It's going to be sloppier than it would be if you had an entire offseason to practice that. Um, I don't think they had a lot of that stuff installed for P.J. Walker. Maybe they did practice it during the offseason. I can't say, but P.J. Walker, not the same kind of runner, certainly, uh, as Cam Newton by any means. And I, I would say that as a pure passer, I mean, it's tough. Like, like Cam was certainly a guy who was inconsistent in New England. And again, the weapons mattered, but I think Cam also had a lot of sloppy throws. His, his footwork was inconsistent. His mechanics were inconsistent. Some of that might have been COVID. Uh, some of that might have been the lack of talent. But I think Cam would also have to shoulder some of the blame for what happened on offense last year in New England. So I'm hoping that it works out. Uh, obviously, we'd love to see Cam do well. But I, I think it's going to be more about whether he can just hold up his end of the bargain and let the defense win games for Carolina uh, over the course of the rest of the season. And they play, I believe, one of the toughest schedules in football after their bye. They get the Bills, they get uh, the Saints, and they get two games home and home against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there is no competition. And right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number 8, S-A-V-E. Go to JetsPizza.com to learn more and find a Jets Pizza location near you. Again, try Jets Signature 8-Corner Pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's number 8, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza, better because it has to be. Next question is from Zach Johnson, who asked about something that I've been thinking about pretty much the entire season. Zach asks, the Packers have covered the spread for nine weeks in a row. They are 8-2. and two despite a surprisingly low plus 36 point differential point differential excuse me in 2019 they won more games than point differential would suggest 2020 they won more games than point differential would suggest is there any research that suggests some teams can consistently win close games year over year now if you have read my work in the past or more recently you know this is something i write about quite a bit that teams typically do not win close games year after year Typically, that is the easiest way to spot teams who are likely to improve or teams who are likely to decline the following year. And we've seen that this season. Teams like the Browns and the Chiefs and the Bills have seen their record drop off from where it was a year ago because they have not been as effective in close games. And on the flip side, we've seen teams like the Falcons and um, I guess the Jaguars. The Jaguars have two wins. They don't really count. Uh, the Falcons and the Eagles. Um, San Francisco is making progress. Um, who was the other one who I had who was improving this year? There's one I can't think of right now. Uh, but teams of uh, Broncos, Broncos uh, actually, I think they have as many wins now as they had a year ago. Um, those teams have improved because they've been better in close games. Even if their performance is unimproved, their win loss record has improved. The Packers were a team I named as likely to decline in 2019, or sorry, in 2020. That does not happen. And it hasn't really happened this year. And so What's weird about this is there are teams in the past who have had this happen. The Brady-era Patriots typically outperformed their record in close games year after year. Uh, some years might have been a little below average, but generally uh, about a game a year, I think they were better than expectation. The Andrew Luck Colts tormented me. Famously did it like three years in a row while I was writing at Grantland. Here's the part that I struggle with, though. 
if you want to say, hey, the Packers have a great quarterback and that great quarterback helps them win close games, all for it. Totally reasonable thing to point out. But Aaron Rodgers was not particularly great in close games before Matt LaFleur came to town. He was 34, 32, and one in one-score games where he started and didn't get injured or, or benched at some point during the game. Benched, of course, very early in his career, but, but injured uh, a couple times, leading at the game where he wasn't really playing for the entire contest. 34, 32, and one before 2019. And it wasn't like it was a thing where he really was really bad early in his career and then figured it out and has been good for five or six years even before uh, LeFleur got there. Like, he was pretty bad in close games the final couple of years in the McCarthy era before things flipped and they improved dramatically since Matt LaFleur has gotten there. And on top of that, you know, let's think about how they've won games. This year, yes, they have won a bunch of close games. They've been better than their record. Those have also been games where the, the Bengals game, for example, where yes, Mason Crosby missed two game winners before hitting a third. Uh, the Bengals kicker, uh, McPherson also missed a couple of possible game-winning field goals against the Cardinals. The Packers failed in short yardage inside of two minutes. The Cardinals drive down the field. A.J. Green fails to turn around for a pass in the end zone, and Kyler Murray throws an interception. Like, I would love to say that that is the Packers' formula, that they are secretly waiting until the last possible moment. I, I don't think that's realistic. And put those two games, with one of those two games, it's kind of a different story. So. I, I, I think that there's certainly more to this idea than the simple measure of just how did you do in games decided by seven points or less. I think that is a, you know, a useful measure, but it doesn't tell the whole story. I, I think in the years to come, we'll probably find more research and more interesting data that helps us understand this stuff more. But I do think that the Packers have been both a very good football team, no doubt, and a little lucky. And maybe it's not crazy to be lucky three years in a row. Um, the Andrew Luck Colts did progress when it came to their close game luck after the first three years. The Brady era Patriots did have some some years where they were not all that great uh, in close games. But I, I think that my answer is incomplete. You know, I think that there's a little bit of just total luck and a little bit of something that maybe we can't measure with the combination of Rodgers and Lafleur. The kid Frankie asked a question that I've been meaning to talk about for a while now. He says, "Why are teams having?" more success running the too high coverage against the Chiefs and Bills this year versus the past few years. Also, our defense is able to do this because they don't feel the need to respect the running game and don't need to load the box. And my answer is that it's complicated. So this is going to be a little uh, amazing. So hopefully uh, you can get a general feel for my answer based on a few different thoughts. So let's start with the idea of running these two high coverages. Because I have written about this a tiny bit um, when it comes to the Chiefs. Yes. Like, like, like the idea that the Chiefs have never faced a too high defensive shell and have suddenly, teams suddenly decided to do it and it solved the Chiefs is just total nonsense. It is absolute gibberish from people who don't understand how football works. The Chiefs have seen plenty of too high shells since Patrick Mahomes got there. It's the first obvious thing you would think of once you saw Patrick Mahomes doing Patrick Mahomes things it is, hey, we have to stop that. Like we should put more guys deep. So it's harder to make throw deep against our, our defense. That is a very basic answer uh, to a team that is a very dominant deep passing attack. There's differences now though. Um, and there's differences between two high shells now 
and the two high shells of the past. I mean, the league sort of goes in, in sort of defensive cycles. Um, around the turn of the century, uh, 2000, 2002, 2004, 2006, I would say the most trendy coverage we saw from teams was the Tampa 2. It was the um, Tony Dungy defense, the Levy Smith defense, the Monty Kiffin defense. Um, a lot of teams are running cover two or Tampa 2, which is uh, two corners in the flat for defensive linemen, typically two very impressive pass rushers like your Simeon Rices or your Drake Freenies, um, a penetrating tackle, uh, ideally, and then three linebackers who were in coverage, speedy, rangy linebackers on as big as the NFL linebackers of the time, and then two deep safeties. You know, it was John Lynch or Bob Sanders. And yes, those guys moved around a bit, and those teams didn't always play Tampa 2, but they were playing Tampa 2. And two deep coverages now are more varied than that. Yes, teams will play Tampa 2. The Colts famously played a heavy dose of Tampa 2 a couple of years ago. Um, two deep coverages are more complex they might have been at the time they're more about um there's more pattern matching with two deep coverages than there was 20 years ago there's more masking uh, of those two deep looks before the snap and forcing uh quarterbacks to make reads after the snap when it comes to playing those two deep coverages there's more ways to get into two deep coverages instead of running tampa two there's you know there's two invert there's uh oh boy i mean all kinds of stuff when, when it comes to how you get into two deep coverages. Teams play more quarters, I think, than they did in the years past, which is 40 with, with two safeties in the middle of the field. Um, they're often playing with a safety or another cornerback or a defensive back on the field instead of that third linebacker, which makes it easier for a defensive back to carry the vertical routes that really challenge uh, the Tampa 2 defense. Before that would have been um, the middle linebacker whose job was to run with the vertical route from number three so you might have someone like Brian Urlacher in his prime covering uh, a tight end in years past. Now, if that guy is Tyree Kill uh, as the innermost receiver, well, even prime Brian Urlacher can't run with Tyree Kill. We've seen teams use more defensive backs in those roles as teams have gotten more to five, six defensive back packages as their base defense. So there's all of that from a defensive schematic side. Uh, too deep means something different maybe than it did 20 years ago even maybe perhaps two years ago. On top of that, uh, the Chiefs are seeing more too high than they did in years past. We saw the Chiefs see too high, I believe it was like 30% of the time a couple of years ago, and now it's up to about 50 or 60%. It's dramatically gone up. Uh, teams are very comfortable playing too high. And I think fronts that teams are playing too high out of in years past you know, I think they're still more inclined to go after and try and stop the pass than they were five, 10 years ago. Um, I think defenders are really selling out to stop the pass more than stop the run. We've seen teams this year um, attack the boot concept that so many offenses run, especially the Shanahan offenses run, where it's a, you know, quarterback uh, play action handoff off of inside, off of outside zone, turns the other way, uh, is on a naked bootleg or a boot, which is where the concept gets the name from. And he's basically... Uh, he is free to hit one of three crossing routes. The end man on the line of scrimmage for the defense is left unblocked. And the offense is basically counting on him to chase after that outside zone and try and catch up to it from behind. And if that happens, the quarterback runs past him on the play fake, has a wide open side of the field to work with. Either he can scramble, he can uh, try and threaten that defender um, or hit one of his three crossing routes or, or, or three over routes. And 
That is a way for offenses to gain an advantage. It's a way to leave that guy on block if he's very good. It's a way to uh, create some conflict for that defender. And in years past, teams were very happy to let that defender rush after the outside zone. Uh, they said that's what your job is in the run defense. Um, you know, the passing attack will worry about that. You can chase after that quarterback. Maybe you catch him before he gets rid of the football. Now we're seeing defenses say, you know what? If you want to run outside zone, fine, go for it. We'll catch up with it. We're going to have that end man on the line of scrimmage just go after the quarterback. And he's going to get after that guy. And if he misses out on the run, hey, it's going to be five or six yards. Maybe we would have had a, you know, a gap filled that we don't have filled. We'll make it work. We'll, we'll match it up in the big picture. But we don't want to give up that 15 to 20 yard passing play, which you've hit so effectively. And five or 10 years ago, that wouldn't have happened. Teams would have been, no, we have to be solid against the run. That's what teams do. Um, we, we cannot leave a gap uncovered. We can't, uh, you know, leave a numbers disadvantage. We can't worry about that. We'll deal with the pass when the pass comes. But because teams are passing so much more now than they were then with the Chiefs and the Bills being the most concrete examples, you're seeing teams go after that quarterback and, and, and are, are willing to, you know, lose a number in the running game. And we've seen defenses, uh, the Vic Fangio defense, the Brandon Staley defense, I know Robert Mace has written about it uh, for the athletic. Um, we're seeing defenses sort of change how they cover the run. We're seeing defensive linemen, instead of being asked to one gap where you're going to be penetrating through a gap or two gap where you're being asked to control gaps on either side of you, they're playing more like one and a half gaps. Like you're being asked to have a little bit more in terms of responsibility. And the hope is you try and gain an extra gap that way with your defenders. And that gives you more in the way of pass coverage capabilities behind it. Um, and then on top of all that, I think we're seeing teams say, you know what? Screw it. We're not going to win on defense. We're going to win on offense. We're, if you want to get first downs, go for it. We're going to see teams, you know, we're going to hold you to three or four yards, hopefully. Um, we'll catch up. We'll get a penalty on a hold. We'll get a sack. We'll get a turnover. We'll hold you to a field goal. We're just not going to let you score a touchdown, and that's going to be a win for us. And I, I, I don't think that was the case in years past. I don't think teams thought that way typically on defense. So bringing this all full, full picture to what you asked, yes. When teams play too high, one of these solutions is going to be to run the football. You can do quick game and hit some easy short completion. We've seen the Chiefs uh, hit, try plenty of RPOs um, against those sort of things. And what's funny about all this, I forget who posted, I think Ben Baldwin posted, um, the Chiefs are like one of the best offenses this year in the history of the National Football League at taking one set of downs and converting for another set of first downs, which is very hard to do for a defense that has been, or offense that's been so criticized as the Chiefs have been this year. The problem has not been that they haven't been able to move the ball. The problem has been turnovers. The problem has been that over the course of those drives where they've gotten five or six first downs, they've gotten the five or six first downs and then had a fumble or had a Patrick Mahomes pass bounced off of a receiver's hands into the hands of a defender. It's happened more to them than it has over the course of most seasons for the Chiefs. And so I think like the idea that they have a formula to stop the Chiefs just is not realistic. Like there's a formula to stop the Chiefs. It's create two or three takeaways a game, which is not going to be sustainable. And I do think that when the Chiefs don't turn the ball over, if the Bills can run the ball effectively, if they do run quick game effectively, defenses will adjust. They, do, they don't want to get beat allowing 10 or 11 yards per play while not really challenging 
opposing offenses. And I think that there's always going to be a balance. There's always going to be a, you know, sort of a, a fight there. I think that the balance is more shifted towards too high than it has at any point in the past. And the Chiefs have also the weapons to do it. They just have to actually execute. And we saw the Chiefs do that a little bit um, last week against the Raiders. And a couple of weeks ago, who were they playing a couple of weeks? Maybe it was the Packers game. What's the, it might have been the Packers game or the, who they played before the Packers? The Giants? There was the Giants game. Yeah, they were running the ball effectively against the Giants in that game. Um, what's interesting though, what came, you think about the game last week for the Chiefs. Like, I know that was being portrayed as a, like, oh, they figured it out. Nothing changed about the Chiefs. The Raiders were the ones who changed. Uh, I talked about the numbers for them for too high. The Raiders play the most single high coverage in all of football, and they didn't change that much against the Chiefs. And by the way, uh, Gus Bradley, the Raiders defensive coordinator, comes from Seattle, part of the Pete Carroll tree. Another defensive coordinator who comes from Seattle and the Pete Carroll tree is Dan Quinn, who is the Cowboys defensive coordinator. That's the team the Chiefs played this week. So wouldn't shock me if we saw the Chiefs look more like the quote-unquote old Chiefs this week, even if they haven't solved their struggles against this too high shell. It's just because they're not seeing as many too high shells as they would typically in weeks past. Hope that was a good answer. Uh, a lot of stuff to discuss. Uh, I really think there's some interesting things happening there and something I probably need to address with a column um, as the season goes on. Ed asks, my brother and I love your writing. Well, thank you, Ed. Very nice of you and your brother to say. My brother has gone full-blown, quote-unquote, Kyle Shanahan sucks, and I still think he's a good coach. If I say, Bardwan, I think you're wrong, and here is why, how does that sentence end? Well, Ed, that sentence should end. I'll just PayPal Barnwell a lot of money to take my side of the argument. Okay, no, you don't have to do that. I will take your side of it. I will say it ends because the Niners are better than you think, and the numbers confirm that. The Niners are seventh right now in the NFL in overall team DVOA. They're third, third in the NFL in offensive DVOA. Despite rolling out Jimmy Garoppolo as the best case quarterback for this offense, for most of the season. Yes, I worried about the Niners struggling on the defensive side of the ball and why they were struggling. I wrote about how the offense has made some curious choices about their player personnel usage, how Trey Sermon, a guy who Kyle Shanahan wanted to trade up for only a few months ago, is buried 10 feet deep in his doghouse, how Brandon Ayuk, a, a I think a first-round pick, right, who was very impressive as a rookie, was buried in the doghouse for stretches of the first half of this season. But that's not Kyle the coach. That's Kyle the GM. Kyle the GM has some very questionable decisions about player value. Kyle the coach does a pretty dang good job of running an offense when he has a competent quarterback. And I have no doubt that the offense will look very good at some point with Trey Lance, whether it's this year or next year. This offense is good without him. The offense is not the problem with the Niners. It's been a tough schedule. It's been some bad luck. I think it's been some bad special teams play, if I'm not mistaken. Um, don't know what their special teams DVOA is off the top of my head. I'm going to look it up now as I'm here talking to you. No, 10. They're okay. Um, they have been good on punting. They've been bad on kicking, which uh, I think is why it was so conspicuous to me. And they've had a bunch of injuries. And again, the, the GM, Kyle Shanahan, major questions about whether he's good at this. The coach, Kyle Shanahan, I think is pretty sound and doing a pretty good job. So I think that's what I would tell your brother, Ed, is to look at the Football Outsiders DVOA statistics page. 
David Petrov, a very hypothetical question, which I love. David Petrov asks, every team is limited to a tech mobile size playbook. Which teams would be best with just four plays? Oh, it makes me sad to realize that a percentage of the listeners to this podcast have no idea what David is talking about. Tech Mobile literally taught me football. I think it might've been super Tech Mobile, if I'm not mistaken, but literally I learned the rules of football. I learned the basic strategies of football from playing Tech Mobile on the NES or and or Super Tech Mobile on the Super NES. A great, great football game. But unlike Madden, which has thousands of plays, Tech Mobile had four plays on offense and four plays on defense. You choose one of those four plays. So to answer this question, it's tough because like invariably teams are going to get off script. Like if you read the Chiefs playbook, there's something in there that tells Patrick Mahomes, hey, uh, scramble around for like 10 seconds, run 15 yards uh, behind the line of scrimmage, and then find somebody 10 seconds after the plays began. It works out that way. That's not a rule. That's just Patrick does that. And so you don't write that up, but you accommodate that because it's brilliant. And when it works, it's something that no one else can really defend. So we have to try and just account for that. Let's just be, try and make the assumption that teams are going to honor the plays. I guess at some point it's going to turn into football mush. Guys are going to start scrambling. Guys are going to start making weird decisions. But let's at least hope they're going to run these four plays before getting to that point. If you're only running four plays, I think the team to pick on offense would be the Dallas Cowboys. Here's why. So if you're only running four concepts, the best way to get the most out of those four concepts is to have a great offensive line. So that eliminates some teams that have really good offenses, but not great lines like the Bills and the Chiefs. I want a quarterback who can run when those plays do break down. And that takes out Tom Brady and the Bucks and Matthew Stafford and the Rams. So not many teams left. The, the Ravens could make sense. Lamar Jackson could be like the real life Bo Jackson who can also throw at a really high level. That would be pretty cool. Um, the Packers and Aaron Rodgers, when the Lion is healthy, pretty tough to beat on offense and a incredible number one receiver in Devontae Adams. But I just, Cowboys, the Lion is so good. Dak is so efficient. They can run the ball effectively. I think they can do a wider variety of things at a high level than anybody else in football right now. And so to me, uh, number one in scoring, I think number one in offensive DVOA as well. If I'm no, Bucks are number one in offensive DVOA. I apologize. The Cowboys are number four in offensive DVOA, but I go Cowboys here. Uh, if you want to pick one of those other teams, fine by me. That is my pick, though. Justin Kennedy asks, why doesn't Seattle blow it all up and start over? Always fun. Just blow it up and start it over on paper. Their roster is a mess, and they have no draft capital. And Justin, I think there's a possibility that is exactly what the Seahawks do after this season. It's not out of the realm of possibility um, that the Cowboys would sit here and say, you know what? Or sorry, the Cowboys. Seahawks sit here and say, you know what? Russell Wilson doesn't want to be here. We don't have enough to win without him. Let's just blow it up and start over. But here's the problem. You're going to do that. Your quarterback turns 33 years old later this month. Another Hall of Famer on your roster is Bobby Wagner. He's 31. Your head coach, Pete Carroll, is 70 years old. If you're entering a multi-year rebuild where you're hoping to get out of this in two or three years, like all those guys are gone or should be gone. Like you're trading Wilson. Wagner might not have a ton of trade value as a guy who's 
pretty old and plays a position that teams don't really value that much, but great player, obviously. Uh, Pete Carroll, you got to figure, is probably not going to want to oversee that. That's a guy who's in his mid-70s, might have maybe one coaching job left if he wants to leave the Seahawks. Um, there's not a lot to work with here. Like Tyler Lockett's deal makes him virtually untreatable. I think he'd have like a 30 million dead cap number next year. Jamal Adams just signed. Uh, if you trade him, you're going to be trading him for like pennies or maybe like 50 cents on the dollar for what you uh, sent to acquire him in the first place, plus uh, paying him a bonus. Like, I, I don't think there's a lot to trade away here. Like, yes, Wilson and DK Metcalf, if he doesn't want to be here, or if you don't want to sign Metcalf for some reason to an enormous extension, but that's it. And, and I don't know that that's a, a ton to work with. There's just not that like great core uh, of players in the prime of their careers. And so uh, you can do that. Like, like, let's leave that as a scenario. Consider that as option one. Option two is that you go into 2022 with about $60 million in cap space after they make a couple cuts. That's a lot of money in a market where a team, you know, where a lot of teams around the NFL are stretched pretty thin. They had a, a, a unexpectedly shortened cap last year. A lot of teams did use voidable years. Uh, stretch functions to get some money into the 2021 cap uh, at the expense of the 2022 cap. So teams are going to have reduced spending. There are going to be owners who don't want to spend a ton of money as they try to recover from losing money last year, which, you know, I'm a little skeptical of, but I think there are teams who certainly feel like that's the case where their actual cash budgets are diminished a bit. Um, Yucks are going to have some money to work with. And if they trade Wilson, which is not out of their own possibility, I know there's been reports that he is going to pursue a trade again this offseason, that would actually free up another $11 million on their cap plus a bunch of cash on hand. So maybe they transition. Maybe instead of rebuilding and blowing it up, they just they they sort of make a sideways move. They trade Wilson and then go after Aaron Rodgers or on a lesser level, maybe a Jimmy Garoppolo. And use the catfish they have to build around him with talent. I I think that's more likely than blowing it up and starting over altogether. And who knows, maybe the Seahawks don't have an appetite for that. Maybe they want to just blow it up and, and bring in from scratch. But I think that there's, you know, a team that's been consistently competitive up through this season where they've lost Wilson to an injury for the first time. I, I think you can make a credible case that they are still good enough to compete. If they get a quarterback who is healthy, who wants to be there, who's playing well, I, I think they can still be a playoff team. And, and to me, unless you are totally hopeless when it comes to winning a Super Bowl, I don't think you should be blowing it up and starting over under those circumstances. Let's see here. Um, a couple more. Lior, I think it's Lior. I don't know how to pronounce it. Sorry if I mispronounce your name. Um, Lior asks, what would your plan be a quarterback this spring or in 2023 if you were the Browns? This is a tough question. Oh boy. Um, I, I trust Andrew Berry because he is smarter than me, but I think having picked up the option, I think you play it out. I think you go the Joe Flacco route and say, Hey Baker, you know, you play your best football when you have to prove it to people, like prove to us that you're our guy for the next five years and they'll get a huge contract for doing so. Um, the price tag for 2022 it's a fully guaranteed 18.9 million. It's a lot for a backup. But Baker Mayfield's going to be the starter there. And it's that's that's very low end starter money. You can certainly deal with that if you have to. And then even if you have to franchise Baker, 
2023 to help get a new deal done, that's not a, a huge problem. If you're the Brad, you can make that money work if necessary. Um, the Brad's have invested so much on the offensive side of the ball around Baker. I mean, you think about what they have in terms of their financial situation. They have four linemen on multi-year contracts, sign-up market value, and a fifth lineman in Tedrick Wills, who was a first-round pick. They have Austin Hooper making a lot of money. David Njoku was a former first-round pick. They just got rid of Odell, but they had a, uh, two wide receivers who were very expensive, and Odell Beckham and Jarvis Landry, now one receiver who is very expensive. Two running backs making significant money in Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt. And this is a team that has so much invested on the offensive side of the ball around a quarterback. They are the dream scenario for a team that was going to go and let their quarterback leave and go after a young quarterback, something I've written about a bunch in the past. I think the problem with that, though, is that when I thought talked about that idea, it's always been about having a quarterback who you trust can get a significant trade amount in return so you can then use that, that draft capital you acquire via trade to get the quarterback you think is going to replace him. And that's the tough part, I think, for Baker Mayfield. Um, what's his trade market like if he continues to play this way? You know, if he's inconsistent, struggles with injuries, the Browns finish like right on the cusp of the postseason. Maybe they are the seventh seed. Maybe they miss out slightly. And the Browns think, okay, we want to go in a different direction. We want to trade for Aaron Rodgers. We want to go and get Jimmy Garoppolo or Kirk Cousins or someone like that. Like, what do you do? I mean, you're not trading him to the Steelers. That would be a nightmare for Browns fans pass or fail. Um, the Broncos probably don't want a guy who looks like Baker Mayfield. They typically want, you know, they just traded with Teddy Bridgewater, but on a long-term deal, I think they want a more traditional football-looking guy. Uh, there are teams who would be interested, the Texans, if they trade Deshaun Watson. You would figure the Giants, if we went from Daniel Jones, Washington, the Lions, if they don't want to draft a quarterback uh, in the first round this year, the Saints, which I think would be a great fit. Um, for team and for player. Uh, the Panthers, maybe, if they do move on from Sam Darnold. But like, are, are any of those teams giving up a first-round pick for Baker Mayfield? And if you're not getting a first-round pick, is it worth making that trade? I, I feel like it's a tough, a tough line to toe where it satisfies all those different possibilities. To me, I think, given that Baker is not playing his best football, he's been inconsistent, he has not been healthy, I think the best and most logical scenario is to run it back one more year, give Baker that shot, let him prove he's either the guy and respond accordingly, or maybe hit the draft in 2023 when there might be a better quarterback class available for you to build around what might be a complete team for the Cleveland Browns. I'm going to finish up here with two soccer questions because I got two soccer questions from my friends and it's my podcast. So I'm going to answer them. Uh, Josh Norris, uh, excellent, of course, fantasy uh, Minds, excellent podcast and video host for the Underdog Football Show, asks, who are you starting your football manager 2022 save with? Of course, the legendary soccer slash football simulation game, Football Manager, came out this week. I've devoted too many hours in my life to Football Manager, um, but I have not played the more recent Football Manager games. I've played like 2001, 2002, and 2011. Um, in, in, in American football terms, if you don't know anything about football manager like basically think about playing nfl 2k5 instead of madden like the the people who are obsessed with that that's how i feel about football manager it's very complicated and i i've already devoted enough time in my life 
to getting stuck in. I will say that my last save in Pokemon Manager 11, uh, I think I played as, who did I start with? I started in Sweden, I want to say somewhere. And then I went to Benfica in Portugal. I went to Inter Milan. I won everything. I went and coached the Dutch national team for a decade and didn't win anything. I went back to Ajax and won in Ajax. Um, I think, who was it, Newcastle? I think actually Newcastle got taken over by a tycoon. And so I moved to Newcastle and won a bunch of stuff there. And then that was it. Um, I ended the game at that point. I think it was probably 50 seasons in, which tells you how obsessive, unfortunately, uh, I am a football manager. So um, I, I, I love starting with like teams in random countries and working my way up to the big clubs from there. So I would recommend doing that with Football Manager 22. Um, of course, uh, you know, live your truth. If you want to play as Barcelona from day one, do it. You want to play as Newcastle and spend all the money they're going to have, go nuts. That is the way I play Football Manager. Play it the way you like. And Nate Tice, our friend and frequent podcast contributor, Nate Tice, uh, USMNT, Obsessive S, Way or Aronson, who are you starting at right wing when Christian Pulisic is fit? This is going to lead to the only hot take of the Bill Barnwell show today. And that is that I think the U.S. men's national team has to proceed as if Christian Pulisic is not going to be fit. I think if he is fit for matches, that is a bonus. I am comfortable playing him, of course. But I, I think given his history over the past few years, I think you have to treat that as the exception as opposed to the rule until he proves, hey, I, I'm, I've been fit for six months. You, you know, play me regularly uh, as a starter in the U.S. men's national team. I, I think that the role he played for the U.S. in over Mexico might be his best fit. Um, of course, he is the most talented player in the pool when healthy, he is a difference maker. Um, we've also seen games where he's really struggled, where he's felt like he had to take over and be the guy for 90 minutes and has not been able to do that. And it's been to the detriment of the national team. I think he's, you know, he doesn't need to be, um, could be a good example, but like he doesn't need to have, be playing with the ball every moment of every of the match. And I think that, um, of course, Gio Reyna is going to play a big role. I think that um, the guys Nate mentioned, Brandon Aronson has been excellent for the national team. Uh, Timothy Weah had a goal and has been very effective um, in both a sub role and as a starter role. Um, I, I think I would, I, I think I'd probably consider starting Way and Aronson um, and, and have Pulisic a, a, as the first guy off the bench. Um, I, I think that it's blasphemous to say. And I realized that if people listen this part of the podcast, they're going to be mad at me. Um, but I think I would take that as a healthy surprise and a happy surprise as opposed to um, planning that he's going to be the starter and working backwards from that. And we'll see. I mean, I would love to be proven wrong. I would love to eat my words here. I'd love to have a healthy uh, Christian Pulisic as the focal point of the national team for the next decade. I guess this is a reverse jinx, um, if I'm being honest with myself and honest with you, the listener. But I do think that um, you know, it, as we get closer to um, the Qatar World Cup, as it seems more likely, the U.S. will thankfully uh, make it through the uh, CONCACAF octagonal, 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 I guess it is now. Um, I do think that we're at a point where I think the, the gap between a healthy Timothy Weah, a healthy Brendan Aronson, and a not healthy Christian Pulisic 
leads more towards the former than the latter. And I think they offer role to play. And hopefully this is a decision that uh, Pulisic's form and his health will make for the national team in the matches to come. So that was it. Hope you guys enjoyed the mailbag podcast. Um, we will have a guest back with us next week, of course. Um, hope you guys have a good holiday. You know, listen to the Thanksgiving week show. Um, we'll be back with more audio in the weeks to come. So hope you guys enjoyed this mailbag show and more on the way. <laughs>